It's becoming increasingly common to hear people warn Christians that they are on the wrong side of history. Now, look, nobody likes to feel like they're on the losing side of anything. I know I don't. And let me illustrate this for you. Now, I am a committed Chicago Bears fan. Uh, This is going to be a football reference, American football reference, for those of you who are not familiar. But I am a committed Chicago Bears fan. But every year, they come up short of winning the Super Bowl. And it's been like since 1985, since they have last won a championship. And quite frankly, it's embarrassing. There have been moments and times where I felt like I might as well be a Green Bay Packers fan. And now Green Bay Packers is like the Chicago Bears nemesis, right? But it's a bit frustrating. It's a bit disorienting when you constantly have people coming up to you saying, oh, man, the Bears lost again. What do you think of your Chicago Bears? You think they're going to make it this year? Oh, they're doing really bad. They're horrible. And you just feel like rooting for a winning team. Now, some of you are probably like, well, I don't really get that sports reference because I'm not into sports. Well, how about this? How many of you have ever had someone come up to you and say, wow, you still believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Or how about this? Wow, you still trust the Bible? And what they're really saying is that the world has moved on. And history has judged the Christian worldview and the God of the Bible as relics of the past. They say Christianity had its day. Now, look, when you think about it, the people using this phrase are often making an assumption that they can know the future based off of certain social trends that are happening in the moment. They are confident as to how history will unfold. But only God knows how history will unfold. And our text tells us that this day, or our text tells us that today, that God is the Lord of history and that the future belongs to him. Look, it doesn't matter how things might look now or how the drama of history is unfolding before our very eyes, Christian. We are called to stand firm. To stand our ground and to be confident in this truth that the future belongs to God. So let's look at this psalm. Let's look at Psalm chapter 2 and see what it says about the Lord of history. Both Hebrew and Christian tradition, right, believe that Psalm 1 and 2 were originally one psalm. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous and bids us to choose. You are either for God or you are against him. Whereas Psalm 2 warns us that there is a consequence to the choice that you make. And you can either experience mercy or you can experience 
his wrath or judgment. You see, Psalms 1 talks about God's authority over individuals, whereas Psalm 2 talks about God's authority over the nations. Now, the Old Testament context in which this psalm is written is probably given reference to the coronation of a king, possibly David or one of his sons. God is installing his new king on Zion, and the natural response of the nations would be to conspire and to plot against God's anointed king, to test them, to see just how strong or how weak they are. So in this context, God is telling this new king, look, don't worry about the threats that you are receiving from the nations because you are my anointed and I will protect you. But when you read this psalm, you realize that there is something else going on here. The sheer glory of the promises that we find in this psalm and the things that are said about the king are far too great for any earthly king. We see that early on in verse 2. It says that the kings of the earth rise up and they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, many of you know anointed means Messiah, which is in In Hebrew and in Greek, it is translated as the Christ. The Messiah or Christ was the one who was to come to reign as prophet, as priest, and as king over the Lord's people. In Luke, the gospel writer, he uses this title of Christ to connect the themes of Psalm 2 to Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 27, the apostles' reading of Psalm 2 provides a foundation for them understanding their own recent persecution and that their hope against the opposition that they were facing was in the man, Christ Jesus. And if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, then no matter what opposition they were facing, they knew that they would not prevail. You see, Psalm 2 is broken into four stanzas with three verses each. And in these verses, you, you kind of see a dialogue happening between man and God as to who will determine the future. So in verses 1 to 3, you have a rebellious man who, who's speaking out against God. And then in verses 4 to 6, you have God's response to man. And in verses 7 to 9, you have the son speaking of his father's promise to him. And then finally, you have the voice of the spirit in verses 10 to 12, warning rebellious man and the nations. So let's look at this first voice. Let's look at man's response to God. So verse one starts out with the question that is simply asking, look, why are the nations raging, as one translation put it? Or why are they conspiring? And the image that this is supposed to paint for us is that the leaders of the world have come together to plan a hostile takeover, to throw overthrow the government of God. 
Now, it's hard to get the nations of the world to agree on anything, to come together on anything, to work together on anything. But we see in this passage that that's what they're doing. We can't get them in one room to agree on climate change or our response to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. But this is what unites them. This is why the nations of the world are coming together. But here they are, this international coalition of world leaders banding together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Notice what they are doing in verse 1. They are plotting and conspiring against the Lord. Now, what I found interesting about this word plot is that it is the same Hebrew word that is translated to meditate in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. And here's what I think the psalmist is trying to communicate. That while the godly are sitting and meditating on the word of God, the wicked, the nations, the rebellious, they are contemplating, they are meditating on how to overthrow the rule of God. Look, my friends, this has been the story of humanity since the very beginning of time. Man has always plotted and schemed and sought a way to push God into the dustbins of history. We don't want to. Let me also be clear that I don't think that this conspiracy is against our sort of generic understanding of God. Here's what I mean. Look, what I have discovered is that many people are usually comfortable with some general concept or idea of God. People often talk about a God of love or a God of compassion and a God of tolerance. But it is the God of Scripture that people have a hard time with. And it's not that the God of the Bible isn't loving and compassionate but it's that the God of Bible of the Bible is also a God of truth. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of holiness and justice. And he calls us to bear the marks of his characteristics. So just look at how the world treated Jesus, the Messiah. Some of you might disagree and say to yourself, like, I don't believe that it's the God. Look, look at how the world treated Jesus. I mean, Jesus, the son of God, I mean, he was love incarnate and he came in the flesh and he dwelt among us. And what did we do? We despised him. We beat him. We spat on him. And we nailed him to a cross. And why? Because he came and he taught us how to live. He told us to love our enemies. He told us to forgive the unforgivable. And he told us that life, true life, could only be found in him. God didn't, Christ didn't come to affirm our individualistic quest to find purpose and meaning and morality apart from him. No, he, instead he came to show us that both meaning and purpose and morality was found in him. 
So what did we do? We got rid of them. Verse 3 tells us why. Because we don't like feeling owned by God. We don't. We don't want him dictating to us the terms of our lives. So we say, let us break that chains and throw off the shackles. It's like we're like children looking up to heaven defiantly and saying to God, you're not the boss of me. We're not fine with God's plan for marriage. We're not okay with God's plan for how we live our lives and what we do with our bodies. We don't like God telling us who we can and who we cannot sleep with. We want to be free to live life on our own terms. We want to make the rules. I've been reading a very interesting book lately by a guy named Carl Truman. The name of the book is called A Strange New World. And in this book, he traces the sort of intellectual roots of the expressive individualistic movement that we're seeing in our culture today. And he traces it back to men like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. And he says that many of us are so unaware of how much these men have shaped the modern notion of self and of personhood. You see, both Marx and Nietzsche believe that the Christian God put restraints on human beings. And what they advocated is that in order for humans to fully flourish and to be true and fully authentic to who they are, they essentially have to kill God. By sheer force of will, we we have to put them to death because that's the only way that we can flourish and we can make progress. We have to declare that God is dead. We have to break the shackles. And it is these ideas that are at war with the church. It's these ideas that have undermined traditional, the traditional Christian moral framework in our society. And it has convinced many Christians who still hold to their faith. They are foolish. They are backwards. They are on the wrong side of history. God is dead, they say. Stop worrying about it. And you do you. You live your life the way you want to live it. That is the voice of man to God. You're dead to me. It's my time to rule. Now let's look at How God responds to man's voice. Verses 4 to 6. So what is God doing as the nations rage and the people plot and meditate ways to get rid of him? I can tell you what God is not doing. God is not pacing the floor in confusion. He's not biting his fingernails. God has not been whisked away by the angels to some undisclosed location for his protection. 
God is where he's always been, seated on the throne, reigning. Verse 4 tells us that God looks at the rebellion of man and he just laughs. Now, this is not a laugh of, of, of funniness. This is a laugh of derision. When God laughs, it's not funny. When we stick up our fists at God and says that I will overcome you, God just looks and he laughs. You see, friends, rebellion against God is a reality, but it is also divine comedy. Psalm 37, 14 tells us that the Lord laughs at the wicked. Why? Because he sees that their day is coming. A day of judgment, a day of wrath. Look at verse 5. He will rebuke the nations in his anger, and he will terrify them with his wrath, saying that I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's answer to the rebellion of the nations is his son. He says, you can gather your armies. You can plot all you want. I don't need an army. I have my son, my Messiah, Jesus the Christ. It is him you're going to have to contend with. How will this king deal with the rebellious hearts of men? Well, we read that he will triumph over their schemes. Whatever weapons that they form against God will not prosper. How do we know this? Colossians 2.15 tells us how the Lord's anointed, how his king in Zion will conquer. Listen to what Paul says. He says that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having counseled the, 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 the indebtedness which stood against us. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. How will the Lord deal with rebellious men? It's through the cross, my friends. It is by the cross that God's king in Zion will triumph over his enemies. This brings me to the third voice in this psalm, and it is the son declaring to sinful, rebellious man that he has an inheritance from his father. Look at verses 7 to 9. The son says that I will proclaim the Lord's decree He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. And when you look at verse 7, you and you know the the, the New Testament, you realize that this passage has been used many of times 
and the New Testament. It's been used to declare the deity of Christ. Hebrews 1, 5 says, for which of the angels did God ever say that today you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. This verse also speaks of the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 13, 32 to 33, when Paul says that this is good news that God has promised to our ancestors And it has been fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. Then he goes on to quote this psalm. As it is written, you are my son, and today I have become your father. God's king in Zion, Jesus, the son of God, is risen. And he is reigning. And because of this, my friends, we can be confident that God is in control over history. We can be confident that the future belongs to him. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 28, we read that God was in control when the rulers of the world gathered together. They conspired to put Jesus to death. They wanted to remove him from the pages of history. But as they say, they were only doing what God had purposed and planned from the very beginning. Can't get rid of God. And he proved that he was in control over mankind's attempt to rid the world of him by raising Jesus from the dead. And what this shows us, my friend, is that the resurrection forever proves that the outcome of history is not in doubt. You see, man tried to get rid of God once, but then the father raised him from the dead. And when he raised them from the dead, what did he do? He gave his son the nations as his inheritance. And so what that means is that all of those who war against God, who rebel against God, who rage against God, they will one day bow their knee to Jesus Christ who is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. The nations belong to him. That's why God laughs. Because he looks at the futility of man and says, look, why? Why are you resisting me? Why are you fighting against me? I have already won the battle. There's nothing you can do now. Because all power and authority have been given to Jesus. Which means that he is not only the king of the the Jews, but he is also the king of kings. The nations belong to him. And one day those who rage against him will be broken. Verse 9, with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to have in your mind 
the image of a vase. Imagine this vase is a treasured item that you brought and that you valued. And, and it's just sitting there on your coffee table on your library. Now imagine one day you have guests that come over to your house and they knock the vase over. And it hits the floor and it shatters to a thousand pieces. Now I want you to just, just imagine that contrasting image. One day the vase is there on the table, sitting all strong and sturdy, confident. And then judgment falls. The table is knocked. Vast tips over. And it shatters into a million pieces. Well, that's the kind of image that we have here in verse 9. You see, the world may seem strong. They may seem so confident in its godlessness and its godless way of living. And it can seem intimidating and we can easily be fooled into thinking that the world's ideas are right and that the Bible is completely wrong. But what this shows us is that judgment is coming. Those who seem confident now If they don't confess Christ as Lord, will be shattered. They will be broken. They will be dashed to pieces. Why? Because God is the Lord of history. And the future belongs to him. So look, we've heard the voice of rebellious man and God's response to him. We've heard the son declaring that it's done. It's a done deal. The nations are mine. You won't win. And that brings us to the final voice in this song. And that is the spirit's warning in verses 10 to 11. He says, therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. In other words, you cannot win against the Lord God and his anointed. Instead, serve the Lord with fear. Humble yourself before God. Stop fighting. My mom used to tell me when I was a young, rebellious teenager, she would say, Tobias, your arms are too short to box with God. You won't win. Humble yourself before him. It's futile. It's futile persisting in our pride. It is a fool's errand that would only lead to defeat. Instead, look at what we are called to do. Verse 12. Kiss the son. That's what you're called to do. Look, this is not a kiss of romance. It's not me kissing my wife and saying, hmm, I love you, Angela. This is not that. You see here, when the scriptures tells us to kiss the son, it is bidding us to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, when a defeated general or king 
was defeated and he surrendered, he would often kiss the conquering king as a way of saying, you won. That's what this passage is bidding us to do today. To kiss the son. To surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the consequence of this surrender is the opposite of the wrath that is to come on those nations that rage against him. The opposite is the blessing. Verse 12. Blessed are those who find refuge in him. And this is the good news that we proclaim. This is the gospel that we proclaim that Jesus offers mercy. In fact, this is both good news and this is bad news. It's the worst news and then it's the best news. It's bad news to know that we are sinners and that our sins separate us from God. And the worst news is that we can't do anything about it. We can't save ourselves. No matter how moral we try to be. No matter how good we try to be. We can't. But the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. And then he raised him again to life for our justification. And the best news is that this offer of salvation is for you today. If you would just run to Jesus, kiss the son, surrender your life to him, find refuge in him, you will be saved. You will experience the grace of forgiveness and you will experience the miracle of new life. Kiss the sun, or else face the wrath of God, and like the vase, be shattered to pieces. Christian, I want to leave you with this charge. Stand your ground in these last days. No matter how many people you see walking away from the faith, no matter how many people you talk to and they say, I'm done with church, Stand your ground. Hold the line. Listen to the voice of the Son of God that says, I have already won the victory. And in the end, you will win because I have won. The future belongs to God, to his anointed. And he proves that when he raised Jesus from the dead and given him the nations as his inheritance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe your word. That you are the Lord of history and that the future belongs to you. Help us to believe that you have installed your king on Zion and that this Jesus triumphed 
over the, the powers and principalities of this world by the cross. And that he offers us today mercy. And so I pray for those, Lord, who do not know you, that they would surrender their lives to you, that they would kiss the Son. And I pray for those who do know you and are weary and are losing confidence in the gospel to believe that, God, the future belongs to you. Amen.